0: Hello, this is Daryl. Thank you for listening. On today's Total Soccer Show, we're going to be talking about the confirmed... Premier League schedule and the games to look forward to when things get rolling again on June 17th and the earliest that Liverpool can be crowned Premier League champions. We're also going to be talking about two teams from the past, the Benfica team of the 60s, the Eusebio team, but it turns out there are other players as well, and the Manchester United treble winning team of 1999. That's the Ryan Giggs, Paul Scholes, Roy Keane, David Beckham, Andy Cole, Dwight York team and men many, many more. After that, we'll be talking about Timo Werner's almost confirmed at time of recording move to Chelsea from RB Leipzig. And we have a listener question about how that affects Christian Pulisic. Before we get started, I have two things I want to tell you about. If you're not already listening to Football with Grant Wall the new podcast that Taylor and I have been helping with behind the scenes. I encourage you to listen. Uh, Wednesday, there was an interview with Roberto Martinez. Um, On Thursday, Grant published an interview with Tony Sane of the Sane Foundation and of 2002 World Cup fame. Here's a clip with Tony talking about racism in the United States.
1: I think, you know, everybody wants to help. Nobody likes the problem. Everybody realizes we have the problem. But are we really... are we willing to do what it takes to change the problem? And that means, you know, an overall and a lot of systems. So, yeah. So what do you, when people ask, what can we do? What do you tell them? Well, I, I say, you know, one, you know, there's a lot of organizations that do this professionally. And they're struggling to really get a lot of work done because they don't have resources. So donate on a regular basis to organizations. You know, um, You know, in Minnesota, everyone went out and, bought diapers and food and took it to where everything burnt down. There's a lot of food serving organizations that probably buy food um, 20 cents on the dollar, right? Um, That that struggle. So I think connecting with the right people um, would help. Um, I think spending, you know, two to four hours a month on a regular basis, volunteering, giving back, developing relationships, and then also work on yourself. You know, put yourself in an uncomfortable spot, see what you can do better. Maybe take a class, you know. You know, figure out what your own trauma was and how that's being passed on, um, and you know, invest in if you're a business owner, and in, invest in some, you know, anti-racism or cultural sensitivity training. You know, try to understand and not just African Americans and you know Latinos and Asians and you know everybody has a different story, and I think understanding it is key. So when people ask me, I said, you know, these are all things that you can do, but Like, don't do it for 30 days. And then, you know, you did in the in the in the I don't even in the pandemic, you know, George Floyd crisis in in 2020. You know, you know, what you should say is that's the day that you changed your life. right? That's the day you started to to commit to change. And it's not becoming lip service or something that's trendy to do. To hear the full interview and
0: future interviews, you need to subscribe to Football with Grant Waugh. The link will be in the show notes. Second thing I want to tell you about is the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society, who are hosting a trailblazing event, The Big Virtual Climb, sponsored by AbbVie. And the event supports LLS's investment in groundbreaking research to advance blood cancer cures and first in class patient education and services, including financial support and clinical trial navigation. To get involved, to step up to take cancer down, you climb 61 floors or take 1,762 steps. Inside or outside, on stairs, on the road, on your treadmill, climb whichever way you like. But join LLS for the opening ceremony and then take on your climb with their heart-pumping playlist. Join on June 13th from coast to coast as LLS comes together to climb, conquer, cure. Register at lls.org slash climb. Hello oh, and welcome to the Total Soccer Show. My name is Daryl Grove and I'm joined by a man who knows exactly what he's doing on June 17th, 19th, 20th, 21st, 22nd and so on. His name is Taylor Rockwell. Hello.
2: Hello. I was excited about it until you listed it out that quickly and now I'm scared. It's a lot of football.
0: We have the official Premier League schedule and uh, kick times and uh, television stations that it will be on when Premier League football makes its return Wednesday, June 17th. Do you have the list in front of you, Taylor? I do indeed. All right. So if listeners don't know, it all starts again. Premier League, behind closed doors, obviously. But on NBC Sports Network, which is where we left it. um, (laughs) Wednesday, June 17th, 1 p.m. Eastern, Aston Villa versus Sheffield United. Uh, We thought this was going to happen. It's officially official today. Then 3.15 Eastern, Man City versus Arsenal, which with all due respect, that's the one to be excited about.
2: Yes, I don't think you need to even qualify it. Uh, maybe you're a Villa fan, maybe you're a Sheffield United fan, but yeah, I think for most neutrals, Man City-Arsenal, uh, what for, like apprentice versus master, yes. so to speak.
0: I, yeah. I was wondering if you'd beat me to that or not. <laughs> I'm ready for that line to happen. Only a master of evil, Mikel, <laughs> if, uh, if Arsenal <laughs> managed to beat Man City. Because the big news is, if Arsenal beat Manchester City, if Manchester mm-hmm. City lose that game, then on Sunday, Everton versus Liverpool... 2 p.m. Eastern on NBC Sports Network. If Liverpool win that game, away, question mark, Everton, because we don't know what the venue is going to be, but theoretically away. Um, If Liverpool win that game and uh, Man City lose that first game against Arsenal, Liverpool will be crowned champions of the Premier League. If not, Taylor, it's just going to happen at a later date.
2: Uh, yes, I think that is that is definitely likely, barring some catastrophic incident. The assumption would be that Liverpool win it eventually. Uh, the question is just how soon. I do love the idea of them reopening, Man City lose, Liverpool win, and then it's just sort of like, all right, well, I guess that's it. Should we call it a, call it a season? Like everybody where they are? All right, we're good. Let's keep going.
0: Uh-uh, we've got Wolves hunt for a Champions League place, or more yeah, realistically, yeah. a Europa League place. Um, so um, we talked about this off air, but what we're going to do, especially for the early rounds, is we're going to cover almost all of the games right basically the big big games will make sure to give coverage to and it's going to be coming at you every single day because there's that there's those wednesday games and there's friday saturday sunday one game on monday and then the whole next match week starts again on that tuesday with a midweek schedule then it goes all again on saturday it's going to be just the it's gonna be like the world cup right the occasional mm-hmm. day off but mostly multiple games a day um with the premier league just rolling through the remaining
2: fixtures I would go with infrequent over occasional days off. Uh, yes. Uh, so th- so I think I'm prepared for that. Uh, I do like that we will still get our very, very busy summer. We weren't sure if we'd get that. Yeah. I do have questions. Like if NBC decided to just go full 30 Rock, and that's why they're using Peacock uh, to describe the channel that we can find <laughs> these games on. Do you know, I hope but, they're do you know also... about Peacock? I'm, I'm assuming it's their streaming service.
0: Yes, yeah, So. Streaming service which is recently launched or about to launch. Um, and just to be really clear, Peacock for most people is available for free with ads. Um, mm. But if you have the free version, games won't be shown. You, a- you mm. will not be able to see games on the free version of Peacock. The games will only be available if you are paying for one of the, the premium versions of Peacock. But those games are also on NBC Sports Gold, which is where all these sort of overflow games, often the Wolves games, um, <laughs> yeah. were to be found anyway. But like looking at the schedule... Do you understand
2: what I'm getting at, which is that there's a joke in 30 Rock where they start using peacock as an adjective? So it's like, does that peacock with you? And that's all I see here now is NBC just really expanding to use peacock wherever they can. I forgot about that. I forgot about that. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs)
0: <laughs> let, let me just get this out to listeners, though. The, the main thing to know is the majority of games, and looking at the schedule, I want to say 85 or so percent, it's on NBC Sports Network, or those Saturday 12.30 kickoffs are kind of as usual on the big NBC channel. Um, so you're going to watch, you're gonna be able to watch all kinds of games here. For example, the first game that's on Gold slash Peacock is Bournemouth versus Palace, which, with all due respect, again, it's not one of those high-profile games that everyone's going to be clamouring to see.
2: Uh, no, not so much. I mean, you know, we got Wilf Zaha in there. That yeah. is pretty much it. Oh, I'll tell you yep. what. If okay. you'd
0: offered me that five weeks ago, <laughs> I'd have been all over it. Mm-hmm. I might have paid $50 yeah. to watch that game.
2: <laughs> yeah, now we're all spoiled with Bundesliga games and <laughs> whatnot. Sure uh, so, yes, I'm excited for the, for the Premier League's return. I'm excited to stay busy and watch lots of games.
0: Same, same. Well, we'll be doing that, and then we'll be talking about it. I'm sure we can rope Ryan Bailey into it as well. I would guess so. <laughs> um, okay, so I'm glad that we've we, that we've got that information out there. I'll put a link in the show notes so people can see the schedule for themselves and plan accordingly. Um, on the rest of today's show, Mr. Rockwell, we are gonna be playing another game from the Champions Champions Cup of History, sponsored by Bill and Ted, or Ted and Bill, as Bobby Warshaw calls them.
2: <laughs> yes, we are. Maybe Today just, we've got. Maybe,
0: maybe Bobby just has a different order of preference of uh, <laughs> of Alex Winter and Keanu Reeves.
2: I'm sure that's what it is. I'm sure it's not at all completely forgetting because I feel like Bobby probably hasn't seen Bill and Ted ever or if not uh, ever in a very long time.
0: It feels too silly for him. Yes. He was probably watching a instead of like the the scene where they referenced the Seventh Seal, the Bergman film in Bill mm-hmm. and Ted's Bogus Journey, Bobby Warshaw was probably actually watching the Bergman film.
2: Yes, or writing like a 3000 word paper on like how they got Plato's reaction to things wrong. <laughs> One or the other. Kisses to you, Bobby.
0: Kisses if you're listening. Bobby will be interested to hear about today's Champion Champions Cup of History matchup. It's the Benfica team of the 60s versus the treble winning 1999
2: Manchester United team. Mm-hmm. What a matchup,
0: Mr. Rockwell. What a matchup.
2: Now, when you say Benfica of the 60s, I have it as Benfica 1960 to 1962, just making sure we're going yes. Gutmann route here as opposed to an amalgamation of things.
0: Yeah, so these, are, cool. uh, to give the background, this Bella Gutmann coached team, Benfica, 61 to 62, won back-to-back European Cups in 61 and 62, the first non-Real Madrid team to win the European Cup. Um, Goodman leaves after 62, right? Essentially because the board won't give him extra money. Um, Famously puts a curse on them. Uh, But Mm -hmm. they do continue to make it to the European Cup final. I believe they go back in 63, 65, 68. So I really think of them as a team that almost spanned a whole decade and with really similar personnel. But yes, the glory, glory, glory days are 61, 62. And I lean more towards 62 anyway, because that's when you've got a 20-year-old Eusebio um, and you've still got Goodman, and you've got the whole team around him. Because Eusebio's introduction sort of moves a couple of other players around as well. So really, I'm looking at
2: 1962 more than anything as the peak of Benfica. I am as well, but I will, as I am wont to do, uh, go back to 1959 for a moment to to talk about Be- uh, Bela Goodman's arrival. That's yeah, he let's do it. Hired. hired away from Porto, who had won the league that season, so a, a decent coup there uh, by Benfica. But Goodman comes in, he sacks 20 senior players, he changes up the approach to some extent. And that's where I want to pause for a moment, Daryl, because did you see a lot of like he changes it to the modern 4-2-4 and they're playing in a kind yeah. of a, a 4-4 sort of situation? Because I did not see a lot of that when I actually watched the Games.
0: so here's what i took that to mean um i heard people say that a lot i never saw a lineup listed like that um, as in, like when when the lineup is written out, and it, I don't know if you saw this in the sixty two final, they literally uh, drew it up yes. um, on, on like a flipboard piece of paper and just put the camera on it for thirty seconds. Can um, I
2: say the best part about that for a moment is yeah. that uh, I did see that, and I love that um, it, it's all like very handwritten, but then they make the effort to where it says Benfica, they've drawn a box and they've added shading, so just that looks three dimensional. It's like, yeah. all right, so they took a little bit of time. Well yeah. done, artist. Bit well of about. art,
0: bit of art going on yeah. there. Um, yeah. Anytime I saw the the formation listed, and anytime I saw them play, it looked me like what i would call a three two two three
2: i would agree with three,
0: that. three two two three but i think here's the important thing is that four four two idea um or almost four two four idea it almost describes more of an approach rather than a shape like more of a commitment to attacking yeah. um, than an actual shape on the field so that's what i take all those references to four four two to me
2: yeah, I would I would agree with that, and I would agree with with the overall point that it's about the shape and the attacking, or like it's more about the attacking style than it yeah, is the, the physical shape. The, the yeah, because that's yeah. the big thing with Gutman coming in is he brings this very attacking idea, this focus on the system over the individuals. It's not about a lot of individual dri- like dribbling and you kind of surround the best player. It's about everybody kind of playing for the team. Some individual moments, especially when it comes to shooting from distance, but mm-hmm. generally speaking, it's a very attacking system that he brings in that works quite well.
0: Um, Here's uh, the Gutman quote. Are you ready for this? I'm sure you've seen this yourself. If we do not have the ball, we have to mark. If we have it, we must run into space. I don't mind if our opponents score three or four goals as long as yeah. my team scores four or five. I never minded if the opposition scored because I always thought we could score another. And he, he's not just saying that. You know, a lot of coaches come in and say, hey, I've got an attacking philosophy. Let's have a look. Um, if you look at even just the two European Cup finals, he wins, what, 3-2 and 5-3 in the two European Cup finals. And that second one, they go 2-0 down to Real Madrid. Yeah, they, do. they go 3-2 down to Real Madrid um, and they win 5-3. And Taylor, while we're on Goodman, I think it's worth—I'm going to guess—we both saw the uh, football's greatest like 20-minute documentary uh, with yes. the winger Augusto speaking. Um, he, the, I think I—I I think I saw it there. I might have seen it elsewhere. The halftime talk. The half-time, the halftime talk. talk yeah, yep. when Benfica were losing what three-two uh, to yep. Yep. Real Madrid, Goodman does not give a tactical speech at all. Um, what, what I heard Augusto the Winger re, re, retell is that in his weird mix of Portuguese, Spanish and Italian, so just some like, basically pulling from various Latin based languages, um, Goodman told the team, Real Madrid tired,
2: mm-hmm. Real Madrid
0: old, Real Madrid cannot Old, run. old, old. <laughs> yes. Di de de Stefano dead, dead, dead. <laughs> so essentially, and he's not wrong, right? This is almost a lot of the same players from the like mid, uh, yeah. mid-50s mid onwards Real Madrid mm-hmm. team. A lot of these guys are in their late 30s at this point. He And he was right. He was absolutely right. But it's a very basic tactical thing, right? To just say, these guys are old. De Stefano, dead, dead, dead. Um, keep going and you guys are going to win. And he was 100% right. Like a 20-year-old Eusebio is definitely going to outrun um, however old he was, de stefano although de stefano was still doing his weird thing right where he just goes up and down the middle of the field and he's constantly everywhere just less effectively than he used to so bravo yeah. to bella gutman for his commitment to attack
2: and, and it is the case that like p- part of that i'm assuming is his lack of fluency with uh, portuguese at least at that time yeah. but i also think if you look at the kind of just basic message there is don't panic keep doing what you're doing yeah. they're tired you'll win that mm-hmm. makes a lot of sense, because I think there probably was an inclination, especially when you're going up against this Madrid team that were so dominant, so so like talented, have the depth they do, have the names they do. There probably would have been a moment of like, OK, let's change it around. We're going to go really defensive, and then we'll counterattack. But as soon as you're sort of completely adjusting your approach to what the opponent is doing, you're losing some of that momentum, and it's going to require your players to kind of change it up and think a little bit differently, whereas you sort of double down and re-emphasize the system that everybody already has such familiarity with, I think you're sort of reminding them like just do the basics you know what to do and we saw them do the basics in the second half as they sort of tear around Madrid apart
0: yes it finishes 5-3 okay I think we've talked quite a lot about Gutmann let's start talking about some players the first name that everybody thinks of with Mm -hmm. this Benfica team is Eusebio and I want to talk about Eusebio but before we do and we should talk about him first it's worth noting that this team was not all about Eusebio right this team Mm -mm. won the 1961 European Cup without Eusebio he just makes his debut like later I think later that season after they've won the trophy right yeah um he obviously becomes like arguably the best player there's a shout for Kaluna as well that's a player I really
2: want to talk about
0: but he's the best player you think Kaluna's the best player <laughs> that's fine. no enough. I
2: think I think I think Eusebio is far and away the best
0: but it is worth saying there's just a lot of talent in this team and yes. I'm going to enjoy us spotlighting some non-Eusebio players eventually but first let's talk Eusebio
2: story. Taylor Let's do it. I cannot remember which of the books I read about him uh talked about it. I want to say it was Inverting the Pyramid, but it might have been another one. But there's an argument that he is sort of the archetype of the modern footballer, that is someone mm. else's language not my own, but I do Sensor agree. With it. it does. Uh, because you look at him and and he Is a player for, despite being in the 60s, like you watch Ferenc Pushkash on the ball and you're like, yeah, that probably isn't going to work today. Like he's definitely (laughs) going to have to hit the gym and kind of get updated for the modern game. I feel like Eusebio, you could throw into a modern team and he would be fine because he's got the physical attributes, but then he has the acceleration and the speed that goes with it combined with the technical control and the shooting ability. He is just an all round footballer that I think could handle the aggressive challenges that I think people use to try to deal with him, but then can score the goal, can let it off can have the shot from distance that spilled that leads to a goal as is the case a couple times against Real Madrid so I I do think that he is just kind of all around an exceptional footballer I know that's not novel ground to be treading upon but uh, I I will emphasize it that I do just love me some Eusebio so obviously we both watched a lot of Eusebio today preparing for this
0: I'll tell you the thing that stood out to me about Eusebio was his arms Mm -hmm. I don't know if it's just that I noticed it and couldn't stop noticing it. But Eusebio is always moving his arms at weird angles... And I think, I think part of his game might be that he was always had magnificent balance because of the way he used his arms. Like he's always like, like lifting that one slightly, yeah. lifting another slightly. And you do see him manage to like strike balls at weird angles that are put across to him or to sort of uh, dip one way and go the other way. Like, and I think using his arms for balance might be a key to it. Right. And when I say arms, it's not about like wrestling with players. It's just about seeming to keep his body perfectly balanced. And I'm sure there are other players who do that, but it just jumped off the screen, even in black and white, to see Eusebio um, using his arms for balance.
2: Yeah, think of Michael Flatley's Lord of the Dance and then think of the opposite of that, and that is
0: Eusebio. (laughs) Yeah, you could tackle Flatley easily, right?
2: Yeah, Um, I think so. (laughs) Great in a long ball team. Um,
0: But (laughs) Eusebio, the other thing I really felt watching him is there's like this constant danger of he's about to do something so much of the footage is him dribbling and making forward progress but not even at like 50 60 percent pace and you just know he's about to accelerate or he's about to roll his foot over the top of the ball or he's about to cut and like slip a through ball or blast it from distance and you can almost see the panic on the defender's legs you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Oh, are, yes, I do. They're backing off, backing off, backing off. And they know something's about to happen. They just don't know what it's going to be or when it's going to happen. And I feel like that just, Eusebio uses that to his advantage. Like he just intimidates the opponent with the knowledge that something's about to happen. And it almost mm-hmm. makes it easier for it to happen because they make a mistake through, through sheer fear.
2: Yeah, I think I I agree entirely, and then I would add that like that mistake through fear is often sometimes rooted in, oh no, he's going to shoot the ball. And another move that it seemed to be fairly common for Eusebio was the wind-up as though you're going to shoot, and Mm -hmm. then just kind of cut at the last second. But because that shot was so effective, you can see defenders sort of recoil or adjust to it, and I would go with... Eusebio, I think, was the Black Panther. Uh, That was his nickname. Uh, Kobe Bryant was the Black Mamba. And I feel like the Black Mamba would have worked as well because he has that sort of like recoil, like, oh no, he's going to shoot. Except the Black Mamba actually would bite, whereas (laughs) uh, Eusebio would then like lay it off for a wide open teammate because the defenders had sort of collapsed in preparation for the shot.
0: Or he'd like cut and then like play a reverse pass the other way. Yeah, it's it's really, really
2: good stuff. I also Mm -hmm. have
0: have a quick story about uh, Gutmann signing Eusebio that I found in Inverting the Pyramid. Do you know Mm -hmm. this story?
2: Uh, is it about how he should have gone to Lisbon?
0: Yes. But mm-hmm. I'm going to assume our listeners don't know this story, so I'm going to tell them instead of you. How about that, Taylor? That's fair. Um, so, <laughs> Bella Goodman he's the Benfica coach. Um, he goes to a barbershop, right? Gets his hair cut, according to this, every five weeks at a barbershop. Um, while he's there, one time, he sees a Brazilian coach named Bauer, Carlos Bauer, right? And Bauer's about to take a Brazilian team on a tour of Africa, a small Brazilian team. Um, and Goodman says to him, Hey, Keep a lookout for players. Let me know if you see anybody. Mm. Five weeks later, they're in the same barbershop at the same time. Just They're just on the same haircut schedule, basically. And Bauer tells Bella Gutman about a player he's seen in Mozambique uh, playing for a team called Lorenzo Marquez. And that uh, Bauer says, I tried to sign him for my team, couldn't afford him. Um, but this team's a feeder team for sporting anyway, Benfica's big rivals. And I think he's going to end up there. Gutman makes a phone call and hijacks the deal, and that's how Eusebio ends up at Benfica. Because mm-hmm. Gutman has a regimented uh, appointment system with his barber, and it's the same as Carlos Bauer, Eusebio ends up at Benfica.
2: I want to I want to double down on something there though. Uh, to your point about like they were a feeder club, the one that Eusebio was playing for for Sporting, worth remembering at this time for folks who don't know, Mozambique is a Portuguese territory. It's a Portuguese colony, I think, still. Yeah. And so the three largest clubs in Portugal, uh, Porto, Benfica, and Sporting, all have their sort of zones carved yeah. out and they basically didn't cross into each other's. So Benfica crossing into Sporting's to get Eusebio very contentious to the point where the I think the end of that story is that they have to fly him in like under a false name and they like <laughs> consider hiding him because they're worried he's going to be kidnapped by Sporting to then sign for them. Like Literally kidnapped in order to sign for another team. That's how highly touted this player was that at the same time I feel like not that many people had seen play. Yeah. But you understand why now with uh, the reputation he has and the success that Benfica had with him in the squad.
0: And what what's his final goal totals for uh, Benfica are red- several ridiculous. I think it's several 473 goals in 440 games
2: <laughs> That's a lot Taylor It is. And I want to and I think the other reason why I have such a soft spot for him is if you hear people talk about him, it's that he was a pure gentleman who like never lost his temper. And this is at a time when there is racism. But then there's also just that the way you deal with a very creative, technical, good player is you foul them early and often. Yeah. And when he would get those challenges, he would just pop back up and keep going. You don't see him complain. I watched some footage of him when he thought he'd scored. He's called offside or he he thought he scored and the goals called back for whatever reason. And he doesn't really panic. around the ref he just kind of goes on about his business and that unflappable like like aspect of his game is another thing that i think also makes him so intimidating because if you can't rile somebody up in soccer there's that moment of like oh i can't beat this like it's just this machine that's going to destroy me
0: you know that i i love this approach right this is the approach i try to practice this is the approach I preach at our team all the time that it is better to not let anybody know that they've ever got to you and that's more intimidating than you going back at them and saying I'm going to get you or or anything Mm -hmm. like that right it's better to just be yeah be the terminator
2: (laughs) <laughs> mm-hmm. So we, we've talked plenty about Eusebio, a.k.a. the Terminator, a.k.a. the Black Panther, <laughs> be, a.k.a. the Black Mamba 2.
0: Before we before we move on, I want to talk about Eusebio's position, though, because quite important to me is he scored this ridiculous number of goals, right? 400, mm-hmm. uh, 473 goals in 440 games. He's not really a center forward, right? In this, no. in this 3-2-2-3 system, um, Aguas is the uh, the center forward for Benfica, um, the golden head, they called him. So it's this classic, like, 50s, 60s thing of... Benfica have a couple of wingers like Simões and uh, Augusto who are, really their job is get down the wing and cross it in right or cut it back. So they have that like classic two wingers and a center forward. And then Eusebio is essentially underneath Aguas um, alongside Santana who's another guy from Angola which was a Portuguese uh, colony, right? So there's there's a strong Portuguese colonial thing there. So I want to say Eusebio is essentially an attacking midfielder/striker. slash striker. Is
2: that fair? I Coluna. Did you have him alongside Santana? Coluna uh,
0: comes a little deeper um, with, with Gutman, I think. Yeah, I, I normally have Coluna uh, and Cruz as your two uh, essentially uh, center halves, as they called it.
2: Uh, so that's where we have the difference, OK? Because yeah. that's where I have Kavim. And we could talk about that later or not. But yeah, I had Kavim and Cruz and I mean, then Kaluna and Eusebio ahead.
0: Neither of us are wrong because these yeah. positions move around a little bit. Yeah.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, so j- just worth noting that Eusebio, you'll maybe hear him described as a striker, but he really yeah. is more than that. He would pick up the ball a lot deeper and make things happen from there. So don't imagine Eusebio. This, this is the reason I think this is important. Don't imagine Eusebio as a guy who's just on the end of a bunch of crosses tapping things in. It's, it's way more exciting yeah. than that.
2: And he does wear, I think, number eight. So I don't want to call him a number a number 10 necessarily. I do also appreciate that with this team, if you're wondering, where, like, if you want an example of where the numbers come from, this team does it. Because they are the exact numbers as they would correspond <laughs> to the way they're listed of, like, two, three, four across the back line from right to left. There you go.
0: You mentioned him, Taylor. Um, mm-hmm. We've got to talk about Mario Kaluna. Um, mm-hmm. Another player, um, I don't know if he's from Mozambique or if just one of his parents is from Mozambique. But I think it's really important that in the sixties, when there are not a lot of black players on big European teams, Benfica have Eusebio, Coluna and Santana.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, and I think, I think that is sort of why they end up having the success they do, because you have, as I said, Goodman comes in, kind of cleans house, and then brings through academy players. But there's also, uh, I think in The Ball is Round, uh, David Goldblatt makes the argument that it's because of like the economic policies, that there's all this connection between the territories and the colonies, and that's why there's kind of this feedback and forth. But either way, this sort of fluid movement of people within the Portuguese quote-unquote empire i think yeah it, it then lends itself to having a more diverse team but that also is sort of great for the time period and exactly what you brought up versus playing against a lot of uh, of white faces with blonde hair Absolutely. it's cool to see a team kind of run rampant
0: so mario kaluna mm-hmm. is a player i had literally never heard of until I Lord started I. doing the research last night and this morning. And I am ashamed that I do not know of this player. Now I want to say he's one of the greatest players of all time. Really? I mean, just just watching him play and hearing people talk about him and seeing how important he is. I mean, he was in like the, uh, I think the the team of the World Cup in 1966. You know what I mean? He makes mm-hmm. the team of the tournament type thing. So he's one of tho- those level of players. I think he captained Portugal at that 66 World Cup where they made, the, uh, they made the semi-finals, and Eusebio was top scorer. I really think Mario Coluna is a massively, massively important figure in soccer. But Eusebio's... Fame and the excitement of watching him, I think just overshadows everything i'm not I'm not arguing that he's necessarily a better player, but I am saying that the fame of Eusebio just it means that we don't talk about Kaluna enough
2: yeah and I think that that is entirely why, but it's also probably part of the reason why Eusebio is able to have the success he does. It's because it's not just him. It's not a whole team, and then they're all built around him. It's that if you're going to double up on Eusebio, then you're going to leave Kaluna open, and you don't want to do that because yes. not only can he pick your defense apart, but he can also uh, score a goal or two from distance, which he does, I think, in both of the finals. He scores uh, and- the
0: match winner... On the volley mm-hmm. in 1961. So the match winner against Barcelona in 1961, he scores on the volley. It's a beautiful, beautiful, like, uh, side, sideways volley. And he scores the mm-hmm. equaliser against Real Madrid after that Bella Gutmann, um, De Stefano dead <laughs> talk. Yes. Um, it's like, I think it's like five minutes into the second half. Um, Coluna scores the equaliser to make it 3 3 from distance. And then Eusebio scores the next two goals, right? So mm. there's the importance of uh, Coluna. Or as his teammates called him, senor kaluna he was that respected his teammates called him mr kaluna
2: uh, oh okay i like that uh to to your uh earlier query uh kaluna was born uh in africa as was Yusebo, as was uh jose aguas as well oh um, i did not know aguas. that born in angola was aguas
0: okay so santana as well so now we have uh four black players on this team
2: yeah yeah so you see the um yes i don't See, that thing is, like, I don't know if Agosh is, like, if he's maybe very light-skinned. Uh, I know he's born in Africa, but it might have been. That's what I was talking about with the sort of, like, movement back and forth between yeah, yeah. the colonies, that I think it was fairly common for Portuguese people to leave Portugal to go look for jobs elsewhere, fair. usually within the territories, and then they would kind of repatriate afterwards.
0: Okay, fair enough. But All either right, way, thank you've you. got a,
2: a diaspora returning. There thank you,
0: you for researching that, but I'm not ready to move on from Coluna Let's just yet. Um, mm-hmm. Here's uh, the quote from the winger, uh, not Augusto, who's on the documentary, but Antonio Simoes. Here's what he has to say about Coluna. Coluna was an example for others, like a father at the head of the table. Um, he didn't <laughs> have to say a word to us for us to understand how he wanted us to behave. That's...
2: That's good. Although I, I do imagine him then, if somebody misses a chance or doesn't score, uh, him shaking his head with the "I'm not mad, I'm just disappointed." I could see that happening. I don't but I can think also he even needs him... to
0: shake his head. I think it's all in yeah. the eyes.
2: Yeah, but I can, But then I can also see him. You know taking the game by the scruff of the neck and, and being the leader, as you might want your father figure to do. <laughs> he, scores, he scores the winner in the 1961 final off of a, a lovely, powerful volley. It was a Eusebio-esque volley, but Kaluna could do it as well. So he can back it up with like, the on-the-field pre- on presence, but then also the on-the-field performance. Uh, all of which, yeah, I'm going to call him the father of Benfica, uh, even if it might be Eusebio. Why not? Let's I also had in
0: my notes that he appears to be made of titanium, like Colossus <laughs> from X-Men, because opponents just kind of bounce off of him.
2: I can see that. I can see I mean, he's less metallic. But yeah, yeah. I can see the strength
0: comparison. <laughs> um anyone else you want to talk about? Any other players from this Benfica team that really uh popped out at you?
2: Um I mentioned him previously, but uh Kavem uh Domiciano, I think is how yes. you pronounce it. Um uh, but it he's a uh A very good player, like, without me being able to identify, like, oh, he does this really well, this really well. It's just that he could do a lot of different things really well, which is why he starts as, like, a left winger in the 61 final, and then he's a holding midfielder in 62. Still gets forward, can still score goals, but... And the kind of versatility, again, it speaks to that thing with Bella Goodman of it's not just about the individual and performing your like individual role. You've got to play for the team. And if that means I've got to move you here because I think we'll get like, better out of you, then I'm going to do that. So I thought his versatility was pretty interesting as well.
0: Um, I want to talk about Germano or Germano. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure how we're yeah.
2: pronouncing this in Portuguese. I'm going to guess um, Germano.
0: Germano. Yeah. OK, so, yeah, he is um, if you want to picture him. So he's the like center center back in the back three, who would essentially step out and win things and get play moving. Um, a little bit like Beckenbauer, but then he doesn't go and sort of dominate up the field the way Beckenbauer does, right? It's a bit more simple. It's like step in front of play, win the ball, put it into the feet of Eusebio mm-hmm. or into the feet of Coluna or out to the wingers, right? That's what that's what Germano's doing. If you want to picture him, he has a bold head and an evil beard. He looks like Ming the Merciless. He genuinely does. <laughs>
2: A topical reference if ever there were one. But everybody knows what... I don't even
0: know who Ming the Merciless is, but I know what he looks like.
2: I think he's from uh, he's a Flash, Flash Gordon, guy, isn't he? Right? Yeah, Flash or Gordon.
0: That, f- that makes sense. That makes sense. Uh, so yeah, I, I believe Ming the Merciless was based on uh, Gomano. <laughs> <laughs> I
2: didn't I didn't look at a photo of him until now. He looks a little bit like if Carl Pilkington had a, like like fake eyebrows and a fake beard. I'll say that. <laughs>
0: But, I mean, he really is key to how they play, right? Because I don't know mm-hmm. if you saw, there's so much footage of him just getting there first, essentially, driving forward a little bit, and then zipping balls into the feet of the uh, of the more attacking players. Worth noting, there's a lot of attacking players on this team.
2: Mm-hmm. There's
0: not a lot of defending players, and there's not a lot of defending mm-hmm. happening with
2: mm- Not so much that, but a lot of other stuff we've talked about, especially the way Germano played. It's, it is reminiscent of the team we're going to talk about uh, next. I do see a lot of similarities between this Benfica team and that Man United team that we'll be discussing in a bit.
0: All right. Before we move on and talk about Manchester United from 1999, I've done my own little bit of research. Um, Aguas, not black. So only three black players on this Mm -hmm. team. Uh, Like you said, he was uh, born in Angola, uh, but he's, you know, uh, a white Portuguese guy who was, I assume, his parents are over there looking for work or working, that Mm -hmm. that kind of thing. Right. Um, But still, I look at it as revolutionary that you've got three black players Mm -hmm. on a major European team in the 1960s. I can't name you another team. That has that right. That's not happening at Real Madrid or Barcelona or anywhere no. else that I can think of. Um, no,
2: and and not not so much with the inter team that follows either.
0: Uh, uh, oh, actually, I think that inter team is interesting because it's super defensive, right? The Herrera inter team, and we'll talk about them in the future. I feel like they're the antidote to this attacking Bella Gutman team. Yeah. <laughs> you know what i'm saying I think you are
2: correct yes and they
0: do beat them it's they beat benfica mm-hmm. a goodman less benfica yeah. in the 65 final so i think in 62 we're really just hitting this high point where an all-out attack defending isn't that important kind of team can still win the european cup and herrera's inter puts an end to it to that whole yeah well i mean
2: i mean it was i'll give 10 percent to herrera and inter it's obviously 90 percent the curse that's why they lost that game do you
0: want to talk about the curse i know you already talked about it with ryan on the curses episode
2: yeah, I mean we I mean you 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 basically hit the hit the points already. It's after they win the 62 final, he goes to the board And depending on your source, requests or demands uh, a bonus because the bonus for winning the European Cup was like five times less than that of winning the Portuguese league. And so I think he felt he should be better compensated Uh, when the board not only does the board say no, I think they might sack him. Uh, But they say no definitively and maybe like threaten him that if he asks again, they'll fire him. So he storms out. And then is the famous curse,
0: which is that they'll never win a European trophy for another hundred years.
2: Not in a hundred years. And they
0: nearly proved him wrong the next year. They go to the final in 63. As I understand it, Mm -hmm. Coluna is like fouled out of that final. So that's one of the reasons they don't win it. They go back in 65 and they lose to Herrera's Inter. They go back in 68 and they lose to Manchester United. And I can't remember them going back since.
2: So... Oh they've been they've been back 8 times. They as fa- as so the European as early... Cup
0: final or does this include some like UEFA Cup and Cup Winners cup? Oh it might,
2: it might it might include those. Yeah. But there's definitely the story of Eusebio uh, like goes to Belenguit's grave to seek forgiveness <laughs> and to like reverse the curse before a cup final and they do not end up winning.
0: I mean we're more than halfway there now, right? It's 2020. 2062 yeah. mm-hmm. is when I assume Benfica will win the, the European Super League. Or the World Super League or whatever we're playing in at that point.
2: Given how much Bella Goodman traveled around the world and all of the experiences he had combined with his sort of very big personality, small part of me thinks it's real. Yeah. Small part of me thinks that he might know some sort of wizardry <laughs> and is angry enough to have that endure. It's like what they say about a curse or like a, a, a ghost or a curse is always like when somebody dies in a very traumatic, turbulent way that that's what leads to a ghost. That's the <laughs> uh, that's the factual story, obviously, Daryl. Um, so maybe Goodman being sacked in such an acrimonious way, it just left this this cursed pall over the club that they can never win for 100 years. I like that idea.
0: Here's my guess in 2062, Benfica yeah. will win the World Super League and it will be played at the ESPN Complex, the worldwide center of sports.
2: <laughs> That's not at all depressing. <laughs> it is. When Ryan and I did that Curse's show, the Goodman one was one of two that did make me sort of wonder about uh, yeah, about yeah. some things. <laughs>
0: I think Herrera cursed them more than anything. Uh, before we be. move on, let's talk about today's sponsor, Sunday mm-hmm. Scaries. Sunday Scaries. It's a good thing for if you're cursed. Yes, yeah, Sunday Scaries that. are sponsoring today's show. Sunday Scaries are specially formulated CBD gummies. On yesterday's ad retailer that I put in the middle of the George show, I um, first researched to make sure I knew what I was talking about and then explained exactly what CBD is and how it is not, very specifically not THC.
2: Did you listen to the show the day before, I'm guessing? I might have not. Yeah, you might not have because I did the exact
0: same thing. Oh, right. (laughs) And we both have a good instinct to tell our listeners what's happening.
2: That's amazing. Uh, Yes, yes, I I looked it up because I never realized that I did not know what CBD stands for. And and now I know it stands for a word that's cannabidiol or something like that, that I cannot really pronounce.
0: Yeah, I went with uh, cannabidiol. Cannabidiol. Mm. Cannabidiol, yeah. cannabidiol okay. CBD for short. Um, but yeah, it is the non-psychoactive part of the marijuana mm. plant. Um, Sunday Scaries have also added vitamins D3 and B12. Sunday Scaries are super consumable. They come in a little tub with uh, gummy bears, essentially. So they're just tiny little chewy bears with CBD inside them.
2: But I mean, if you were the victim of a curse, like you would feel stressed, you would feel anxious, you'd have difficulty relaxing, you wouldn't be able to keep your composure because at any given time, you don't know if the curse is going to come in and have a factor. You might need Sunday Scaries to help you deal with it. (laughs) Maybe if uh, Benfica had had that prior to a game, they would have been okay. They would have won something and then the curse would have been reversed. It
0: maybe would have helped them unwind. Um, Sunday Scaries has become a leading CBD brand for millennials. Last year, Sunday Scaries, CBD gummies and oil won top accolades from Forbes, Men's Health, a law, and best products. And mm-hmm. if you would like 25% off your first order, just use the code soccer at Sundayscaries.com.
2: That's 25% off your first order at SundayScaries.com. Enter the code soccer where it asks for a coupon on the checkout page. Find out what product might be best for you. Going to Sundayscaries.com using the code soccer for twenty-five percent off your first order.
0: Thank you, Sunday Scaries, for sponsoring today's show. Mm-hmm. All right, let's move on and talk about Benfica's opponent in the Champions' yep. Champions Cup of history. It is Manchester United 1999, the treble-winning Manchester United team. Taylor, I'm going to just hand it over to you to, to set
2: up this team because I'm sure it's a team that's dear to your heart. That is a very dangerous thing to do, my friend. Uh, you're going to throw it over to me and then walk away for 15 minutes? Well, is al- that the plan? I'm also editing, so I
0: can I can, <laughs> I can take pieces out.
2: Sure. I mean, the the basic shape, uh, though he says they did not play a 4-4-2, is a four Uh You've got your Peter Schmeichel in goal. You've got your Jaap Stamm at centre-back. Do you want me to go through all the names or just talk about kind of who they were and why they're in this competition?
0: Well, let's give them, uh, let, yeah, let's give listeners the uh, the back to front. So Schmeichel sure. in goal, Stamm and Ronnie Janssen is the usual mm-hmm. centre-back partnership. Gary Neville and Dennis Irwin, your right-back and left-back. Then the midfield four, I think, is the iconic part of this team.
2: Yeah. Yeah, Giggs, Skulls, Keane, Beckham, uh, from left to right there. Uh, sometimes you have Giggs on the right, sometimes Beckham on the left, depending on if they're feeling squirrely. But generally that's speaking, the, that's, that's probably that's the part I let it out. <laughs> and then you've got York and Cole up top, spelled by Ole Gunnar Solskjaer and Teddy Sheringham.
0: So I'm interested, let's start with that York and Cole partnership. Right, because sure. there are lots of good little partnerships and things about this team you can you can talk about. But I love the Dwight York Andy Cole partnership. I think 98-99 was Dwight York's first season. They just bought him, you are correct? Um, yeah, absolutely from was. Aston Villa. And you wouldn't believe it to look at some of the goals. You wouldn't. No. You you. If someone told you that York and Cole had played together for ten years, you would believe them. There is more than one goal I believe that happens this season where somebody plays a ball into Andy Cole. Let's say it's David Beckham playing the ball into the feet of Andy Cole. Andy Cole just like steps over it, lets the ball run um, to Dwight York. And then Andy Cole makes a run in behind, and then Dwight York plays him through. There's more than one goal like that. That is the type of partnership they have. There's a sort of um, just knowing how to link up. And what's really interesting, you mentioned that 4-4-2 or maybe 4-4-1-1. It seemed to me that they kind of took it in turns, right? Like Sometimes Cole is the highest and York's underneath him, and sometimes they... Sometimes they switch it around. I think the more natural fit is Cole is higher um, and Cole like, runs beyond. and York Because York's a little bit more of a playmaker-y type player. But they both share enough attributes that they can be somewhat interchangeable.
2: And it's interesting to me, uh, a United fan, because at the time, that summer, they were heavily linked with Clivert. And it would have seemed in that moment like, oh, Patrick Clivert, you bring him in. Suddenly you're going to be unbeatable. And yet it's uh, uh, Dwight York signed from Villa, as you said combining with Andy Cole and I think that's the thing right it's the it's the combination and maybe the idea that they're both just kind of okay with the other one scoring like you never see one run off to celebrate and the other one kind of trots back to midfield it is usually the two of them celebrating usually after one headed down to the other to score or pass to the other to score yes
0: oh it's so so good to watch I'd recommend there's all kinds of YouTube videos right of York Cole goal combinations I also think the strength of this team is the depth of the squad and the yeah. quality of player that is willing to not be a starting eleven player. Because mm. York and Cole are definitely the starting strikers, right? But on the bench, you've got Ole Gunnar Solskjaer and you've got Teddy Sheringham there's a team could win yeah. the league with those two as the starting strikers at this yeah. point but those two are willing to play second fiddle obviously those two come off the bench and each score in the Champions League final famously in the dying minutes um, to win the game for Manchester United right but elsewhere you've got players like Nicky Butt like I mean he's like a pretty regular England international um, just coming on to, to fill in for for Scholes or for Keane in central midfield mm-hmm. you've got Phil Neville who's coming in to like fill in at fullback or in central midfield you've got Wade Wes Brown and David May willing to uh, be defensive subs.
2: Yes. Henrik Berg? How dare you? Get Berg in there.
0: Berg as well then, but you've also got Wes Brown yeah. coming through as well. So that's, I mean, that's, I really, that's really deep talent, especially for this period, right? Squads in the, uh, 98, 99 were not as gigantic as they are right now, mm-hmm. right? So this made this no. United team really, really special.
2: And they bring in Jesper Blomqvist in the off season. Uh, he's one of three Yappstam as well, and that's a play like you know you're not going to start over Ryan Giggs or David Beckham. Like they're bringing people in yeah. to be squad players, to be depth players, and it does seem like. People are okay with that. Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, one of the biggest ones, I, I think just sort of embraces the idea that, yeah, I'll be a super sub. I'll do what you ask. He seems to have completely bought into whatever Sir Alex Ferguson wants yeah. me to do, I will do. And I think that's why he is maybe where he is today. There's
0: all that famous footage mm-hmm. of Solskjaer um, sitting on the bench and just watching games intently, yeah. right? Never distracted. And there's this big theory that the reason he's so effective when he comes on is he's been just like, watch it. I mean, yeah. I, it's probably like, apocryphal, but he's definitely watching the game and looking for things he can exploit when he comes out.
2: Oh, I don't, I mean, maybe this is my fandom. I don't think it's that apocryphal because I think that's what made him like that's what I mean when I say I think he bought into it so much is that if you're told hey I'm relying on you for 20 minutes and if it's Sir Alex Ferguson telling you that and telling you that you better score in that time I feel like he was such afraid of him that he was like gonna <laughs> like pay attention to every single little thing and be like oh if I stand on that guy but then make a diagonal run this way I'm gonna have that opportunity and I think that awareness while it seems like common sense is maybe not a thing that was as common at the time enough, so yeah. I think that sort of willingness to sacrifice but do what he's asked is key and then to your point about sharing um, uh yeah it comes on and scores in the Champions League final also comes on for Roy Keane in the FA Cup final that year after like thir- or like nine minutes or something like that and scores the opener in the FA Cup final that they go on to win 2-0. So yeah, sharing him the impact goal scorer, uh, certainly not so bad either.
0: Speaking of people buying in, I really think that's the key to this team, right? So this team, like you said, plays that sort of 4-4-2 slash 4-4-1-1. One of the big things they do is they go reasonably direct, especially if Peter Schmeichel's taking goal kicks. Right. Because he can bang those balls long, right? And say the ball goes up to York or Cole. Those guys can compete in the air, but they're not big target men, right? They're not big, muscly target men. Um, Either they win a knockdown and, like, United build the attack from there. Or they lose the knockdown, but then Man United swarm, right? It's Roy Keane going in to win the ball. Or it's Beckham or it's Giggs or it's Scholes or it's York or Cole going in to win the ball. And it's that like ruthless competitiveness is what I think of when I think of this era of Manchester United team. And I I would add that as well to when the other team is trying to bring the ball out of the back. It's not like a high press, like a, a Leipzig type thing. But there's definitely as they approach midfield or even get anywhere near to it. Aggressive defending starts from the front, right, in a pretty compact formation where everybody's working hard and everybody's staying in shape and there's no space to be exploited and they're they're coming to win the ball back.
2: And then when they win it back, they can possess. They obviously have the ability and personnel to do that. But I was also really impressed by how United tend to, once they win it back, break quickly yeah but sort of with patience at the same time that you don't get that sort of rushed pass that's a diagonal into space that maybe the attacker will get you'll get Paul Scholes or Roy Keane or David Beckham if he's come central sort of looking one off looking the other off and then eventually they find the easier pass that then leads to the more dangerous pass and you can sort of see that aggressive attacking play but then also the measured approach at the same time I think it's a big part of why they're able to sort of continuously pull games back when they go a goal or two behind
0: speaking of measured let's talk about David Beckham yeah. Yes, free kicks, right? Magnificent free kick takeout. I think we've all seen it, so it's maybe not worth we, going into too much detail. About. I,
2: I want to pause there for a moment just to say that if you haven't watched him in a long time, which I hadn't, I sort of forgot about David Beckham and everything he brought to the table. Just watching some of those free kicks, it's not even worth like describing them because everybody knows he can hit them. It's just worth noting the threat of that, that <laughs> you don't want to foul within 25 yards of goal because chances are he's at least going to put it on frame. Yeah. And I think that I can... I cannot think of a player since David Beckham that I was that afraid of on free kicks, that I was like, shh, there's a decent chance. Like, I would say 50-50, this is going (laughs) in. I can't think of a player who had that level of conversion. Even if he didn't, I think he just had that intimidation factor.
0: I think the technique that lets him hit those such accurate free kicks that obviously bend away and then bend in the top corner, Um, it's the same thing with his crossing, right? Any time David mm-hmm. Beckham has an opportunity out wide he doesn 't really have to get to the end line. He can do it if he has any space at all from out wide. Um, I always think of a David Beckham cross as being something with so much pace and bend i guess whip mm-hmm. is the word people would use that it goes it goes behind the opposition defense and normally, if you put it so far behind the opposition, opposition defense it's going into the goalkeeper's hands right but yeah it then whips back around to land in front of onrushing strikers like Andy Cole or Dwight York or maybe a late arriving Paul Scholes. That's the danger I think of with David Beckham that I'm, I can't easily think of a player that can replicate it. Like There's so much no. bend to get it around the back of the defense, but the bend brings it back so that it's right in the path of your attackers. It's it's impossible to
2: defend that. It really is. And this maybe this sounds very obvious, but it's the best way I can make it make sense in my head, is that... Like, the the way the trajectory and route his like the ball will take to get to the person is so strange, as you said, because it's got this bend, but then it drops down, and it's got this swerve on it. Yeah. But I think, strangely... So, so it,
0: it's worth noting the drop-down is also important, mm-hmm. right? It's not just yeah. that it bends mm-hmm. left and right, or right and then left, essentially. It's that it goes up and down so quickly um, as well at the same time. Just terrifying.
2: But I think the thing... I agreed entirely. I think the thing that makes it so effective, though, is that... At the same time, he's incredibly accurate with where that ball is going to end up. Yes. And though it looks really weird and it's got this like massive spin on it, uh, so much so that I have to hit the lamp next to me... um if you are his teammate, you know chances are if I continue the run I'm making or if I make the obvious run, he's going to put it in that exact spot. And so though the defenders I think try to adjust and move around to intercept it or be in a position to cut it out or win it in the air, if you're his teammate, you can just sort of keep doing at 100% what you were doing because you have have the faith that he's going to put that ball on the dime and more often than not he does. And it's sort of knowing exactly where that ball is going to end up that I think is such a special part of his crossing accuracy.
0: And less exciting, but I think, equally deadly, he takes all the corner kicks, right? So the the two goals in the 99 (laughs) Champions League final Mm -hmm. both famously come from corner kicks, right? And it's Beckham that takes both of them.
2: Yeah, I mean, and, and that's the thing with this team is though you you would maybe looking at them think like, oh, Skulls and Keane combining through the middle, then they've got like this great strike force ahead of them. That must be where all their goals come from. So, so many of their goals, like I would say 80% of the goals Man United score this season come from David Beckham or Ryan Giggs yes. crossing the ball into somebody. Let's
0: talk about Giggs because we haven't talked much about Giggs. Here's, the big thing I would love to say about him and get across is... I don't know if people said this at the time, but re-watching the footage, even in 1999, he looks like an old-fashioned winger. He reminds yeah. me of not players that we watch play today. He reminds me of when I've been watching the footage of like the Real Madrid team from the 50s and Hento yeah. running down their wing and the, the Santos team of the 60s. And um, I can't remember the name of the right winger now, uh, but say, uh, let's say it's Pepe on the left for, for that Santos team. Um, and, he, oh, yeah. and even on this, uh, the Benfica team we talked about earlier. Right. The the two wide guys on that that, uh, that team, Simoes and Augusto, the way they would like jink left and right. And oh, Jimmy Johnston for Celtic we talked about. Giggs reminds me of that type of player. Just like which mm-hmm. way is he going to go? Which way is he going to go? Oh, he's gone. And the cross is going in.
2: Uh, maybe hairier, but otherwise, yeah, I agree. <laughs> Definitely hairier.
0: Definitely <laughs> hairier. It's this this 99 season is when he scores that famous FA Cup semi final goal as well. Right. Where he dribbles uh-huh. through half the Arsenal team and then uh, cuts inside and blasts it near post.
2: And that's when the shirt comes off that and that's right. where the chest hair is visible. Yeah. Yes, sir.
0: Oh, so Ryan Giggs, and I like that balance as well. Old-fashioned winger, really direct dribbler on the left side. On the right side, someone who's not going to dribble much at all, but doesn't need to because all he needs to do is create, like, what, half a yard of space to, to whip a dangerous cross in. I love that United yeah. has those two different approaches on either wing.
2: And with everybody we've already talked about and all the names we've mentioned, we're, we're leaving out an important goal scorer. They're left back, obviously. <laughs> Whenever you have a left back taking penalties, I think that's the thing we need more of there. Yes. We need more fullbacks who are the designated penalty takers. So
0: I have a very, very soft spot in my heart for Dennis Irwin, the player you're talking about, because he comes and plays for Wolves after this. Um, he and Paul Ince later on come and, come and play for my beloved Wolverhampton Wanderers. I think Dennis Irwin's a really underrated left back, even in this period because he's not flashy. He mostly Mm -mm. stays home. He's Mm -hmm. got kind of like a midfielder's touch and vision for just nice quick passes. Um, And he's obviously a competitor. He's a tough guy to get past at left back. But I I guess that tactically, he's the one that... uh, I saw a video description of this, right? Essentially, you don't get Irwin overlapping Giggs and going to the end line. You get Irwin holding the position just behind Giggs to let Giggs go and do what he does.
2: Yeah, I think I've watched the same video. And a key part of that would be that Irwin, despite playing left back, is right footed. So he can then go a little bit more central and kind of play balls laterally to have those big swings on to get the ball to David Beckham, who can then play the ball into the box.
0: And worth mentioning Gary Neville then on the other side, because if Mm -hmm. Beckham is not a traditional uh, winger looking to get to the end line and all that, Gary Neville, the right back behind him even though he's not flashy either he provides that bit of width by just being willing to run up and down and up and down and up and down like a like a train that never stops right so (laughs) if Beckham's starting to drift inside you can guarantee that united won't lack width on the right because gary neville will get himself up there and provide it
2: yeah and you know also provide some steel in the defense if you need but i like i like the sort of trade-off of the two of them i like whenever you see it, it it is the old school thing that i grew up with of if you see neville in the attack you can pretty much venture to guess that you're going to see Dennis Irwin standing back with the defense. Mm-hmm. And for the few times Dennis Irwin does get forward, you're going to see Gary Neville drop back in. So they kind of keep that sort of that parallel construction that I think uh, is what I grew up with. So maybe that's why I identify it a bit more and enjoy it a bit more.
0: And how about Roy Keane? we yeah, he's pretty good. We haven't talked much good. about Roy Keane. He's definitely, um, apart from all his on- on-field skills... The, I guess this is an on-field skill. The big thing everybody talks about is him setting the standard of excellence and not accepting anything less.
2: Yeah, I mean, and th- this is where we talk about the way they play, obviously, where whenever goals are scored, which they were routinely against this team, especially early on in the season, he's the one who's going to let people know about it. He is going to be the one to, to have some screaming fits, but then also, as we know in training, is going to be the one to stare at you if you make a mistake. If you fail to control the ball, he's going to let you know about it. And I think... Rather than that be a sort of harsh uh, negative thing, which is what it does become, which is why he ends up leaving in the way that he does. At this time period, I think everybody is so bought in and on the same page that it becomes a motivating thing. And less of a like, oh, I made a mistake. Sorry, everybody. And more of a like, oh, I made a mistake. That will never happen again. I promise.
0: (laughs) Well, Because this is still in the period where Roy Keane hasn't had all the terrible injuries and can still motor box to box yeah. to box to box and really control a game that way right because i know people think of him as the tough guy the guy who's going to like you know put a put a reducer nasty tackle on the opposition's best player and he kind of was that guy but he also was the guy who would just cover all the ground and would was really, really a genuinely very, very good soccer player, right? He would make a lot of very clever passes. He would make a lot of like continuous short passes to keep the ball moving. I would argue United's tempo uh, in this period is partly to do with Roy Keane, right? He keeps the ball moving Mm -hmm. nice and quickly. He gets the ball out to David Beckham. He gets the ball into the feet of Dwight York, and United never stop, right? That's part of what Roy Keane brings. He also... I didn't look at his goal scoring totals, but I'll guarantee he scored a good handful of goals this season. Roy Keane could like take a strike from the top of the box and, and score.
2: He scored. He scored good goals this season. He scored at least a few, but he also scored very timely goals. Like I think he scores the flicked on header yes. after Man United go down two nil in their second leg against Juventus. He scores definitely like a driven volley in a game to bring them back in the FA Cup. So he scores. The commentator in one of the games I think calls it a captain's goal, yeah. and I think he scores those types of goals where you definitely need something where everything's hitting the woodwork, goalkeepers making amazing saves, you're still tied nil nil. Roy Keane with a laser in the 89th minute. Uh, you can kind of count on that from time to time.
0: Worth noting as well, most people will know this if you don't. Roy Keane cannot play in that famous final against Bayern Mm -hmm. Bayern Munich in '99 because he picks up a yellow card, I believe slide tackling Zinedine Zidane, in the Mm -hmm. second leg of the semi-final um, against Juventus, where he also puts in the performance of his life. He's up against Mm -hmm. Zidane and Davids, and I can't remember who the other Juve midfielder is, and he bosses the midfield as United, um, I think, go through on away goals in that semi-final. It's the quintessential Roy Keane performance.
2: And not one of their midfielders, but Antonio Conte in that team <laughs> as well, and causes lots of problems. And it's uh, Keane and Yapstam who who deal with him effectively. And yeah, you're absolutely right about Roy Keane being suspended. Paul Scholes also suspended yes. for that final. So United without their two starting central midfielders, uh, you would assume they would have maybe uh, gotten it handed to them. Uh, and they did early, but they end up obviously with the 2-1 to win. But Paul Scholes also Just terrific. Yeah, let's just terrific. Let's talk
0: about Paul Scholes. I remember at the time in England, I was young, right? I'd be, what, 19, 18, 19? Um, A much less savvy soccer watcher. I didn't understand what Paul Scholes did apart from arrive late and score goals from distance. Um, Rewatching some footage... It's it's not quite the Chavez-esque Paul Scholes of later in his career, but it is a lot of like quick, smart passes and really accurate, like spraying the ball out wide, right? The ball gets mm-hmm. to Beckham and Giggs and gets uh, balls in behind for Cole and York a lot of the time from the foot of Paul
1: goals
2: Yeah, yeah, and, and, and that is... Again, similar to what we were talking about with uh, Oleg Solskjaer, that Paul Scholes like you know he could go on a dribble, like and he would do that occasionally, but it wasn't necessarily about like I've got to get mine, I've got to get the goal and the assist. It was like I'm going to do what's been asked of me. I'm going to keep the ball moving. I'm going to keep it simple. I'm going to combine with Roy Keane. But then if I have to, if everybody else is marked off. I can take it like the game out of control if I need to, and I think his sort of uh, versatility there is overlooked at times.
0: One final thing that I think is worth noting because people won't remember this is uh, this is David Beckham's redemption season. Do you yes, know about this is. narrative? So, mm-hmm. in the '98 World Cup, he famously, uh, while he's lying on the floor, flicks a flicks a little kick at uh, Diego Simeone, I think it is calf, and mm-hmm. gets sent off in the round of sixteen game at the World Cup. People in England hate him for this they absolutely hate david beckham he is burned in effigy that summer when he comes home this could have been the worst season of his life but it's mm. real credit to david beckham that he i don't know if he puts in the work or just that it adds an extra bit of like almost michael jordan michael jordan determination of needing to prove something to someone and um, david beckham has this incredible season by the end of the year everything's forgotten from not just man united fans but the entire the entirety of england
2: That is true, and it is also the case that the team that they meet before they meet Juventus, so in the quarterfinals, they've got Inter uh, with Diego Simeone in the squad, and against that Inter team, he puts in both of the crosses for both of the goals, also has one that should have been finished. But yeah, I think the double assist against Simeone, who gives him the very aggressive handshake before the start of the game, uh, as you would expect. So he gets it sort of on the field and then off the field, I think, it gets that redemption.
0: That's quite a route to the final, isn't it? Inter-Juve by Munich.
2: I love uh, Gary Neville at one point when the draw is about to be announced is terrified asking the commentator, are Juve still there? Like he really does not want to get Juve and they end up getting them all the same.
0: (laughs) Well, it worked out all right, didn't it? Yeah, not too bad. Okay, Taylor, what happens when these two teams play each other Mm in 1962 in Portugal?
2: So I think it is uh, briefly a very close game, and I think Manchester United do end up winning it. Uh, That might be my bias here, so I'm happy to have you uh, disagree or uh, fundamentally disagree.
0: Let's see how convincing your argument is.
2: Sure. Mm -hmm. So I think uh, the reason why I think it's slightly closer in the beginning is a couple of different reasons. I think the kind of discipline of Benfica that they're playing this system but then have the talent to cause problems, uh, I think that could catch United out. But then this is also a Manchester United team that routinely conceded early, especially in the Champions League, and especially from mistakes to Peter Schmeichel. This is his final season with Manchester United. So I can see one of those like distant shots from Eusebio getting spilled and turned in uh, because I do think that with the kind of commitment to attack that we've seen from Benfica and that we've talked about with Benfica this feels like a game that would go sort of 5-3 or 4-2 I think there's going to be goals either way but I think Sir Alex Ferguson's ability to adjust is probably why Manchester United are able to pull this game back so
0: I disagree that Benfica even have that strong start I think Manchester United win this because I I would really disagree with the idea of Benfica being disciplined I think of them as Bella Gutmann's just like established this super attacking style. And they always look a little shaky to me, right? Like mm-hmm. it's them that concede early against Barcelona in the 61 final. It's them that concedes early-ish, concedes two goals against Real Madrid. They are not a team that goes out with a sort of, let's ease into this with a defensive game plan type. I didn't say, I didn't
2: say defensively disciplined, my friend. I said they are disciplined in terms of their attack. And I think that they will be basically the Bella Goodman thing of they will try to beat you by scoring more goals. So I think they're just going to be ruthlessly attacking. And I think Manchester United maybe would get blitzed by that. But then I think Manchester United pull it back because of that lack of defensive distance. See, I have
0: faith in Man United's defending the way that they have yeah. that, that pretty compact 4 And I think like the, the aggression of Stam, you've got Janssen, Keen and Scholes. I think there's a lot to deal with. I'm not saying Benfica don't score, right? Uh, uh, Eusebio is terrifying. Eusebio is going to get Eusebio's is going to get through you. Kaluna's terrifying. Santana's all kinds of all kinds of technical. But I think some of the old fashioned things that Benfica do outside of that, like Simoes and Augusto going down the wing getting crosses in, I don't see that being very effective at all against like you know trying to trying to Simoes trying to beat Gary Neville and put a cross in and hope that Aguas gets his head to it. I think that constantly breaks down either as he tries to go past Neville or as Yap Stam steps and wins that.
2: Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think as long as you have Yapstep doing this sort of stopperish job that he came to do with Manchester United, where he steps out and then Janssen drops in, yeah. I think that definitely disrupts at least some of what Benfica would want to do. And
0: here's the other big thing. I think it's about space between the lines. I think there was much less focus in the 60s on denying opposition teams space between the lines, like the space between defence and midfield and forwards. Every time I've watched footage, it's kind of a lot more exciting because there's just always a lot more space seems to be open. And this 99 United team, it's not a modern, like there's been 21 years since, right? So there's been 21 years of tactical advancement. But it's, it's more modern than Benfica's team, and there, it is a much more it's a Costa Saki, right? So it's a much more compact 442 where the Keenan skulls aren't going to let there be enough space behind them for Eusebio to find space behind them and in front of the Manchester United defense. So yeah. Eusebio I, would have a yeah. lot more work to do to dribble through this midfield
2: and defense than he did in the '60s. And then the the final thing I would say with that in mind is, like, you mentioned Roy Keane sort of, like, marking Zinedine Zidane out of the first half of the second leg, I think it was, or maybe the, the first half of the first leg. But either way, that's because of the sort of, uh, Sir Alex Ferguson's willing to adapt and adjust and, like, sort of, like, have Yapstam step out, but Roy Keane drops in, and now they've kind of front and followed the main playmaker for Juve so much so that he gets moved around yeah. to try to find him some space, and I think... Yeah, Zidane goes that, wide uh,
0: left, doesn't he? I think I saw that in a... In absolutely. A, in a, Like a potted history of the 99 season.
2: There we go. Yeah. And so I think if you have Starlux Ferguson, even if, it, even if it were close, which you're saying it might not be, but even if it were at halftime, I think his willingness to sort of change it up and experiment a little bit and say like, OK, we're going to put this person here and see how that impacts what we're doing versus I think Bella Goodman. I mean, it is kind of just straight up the case that if he has the, the language uh, barrier, maybe he can't convey things as much. But I think also it's always going to be about sticking to the system and just making it happen. Yeah, there's no, uh, there's no... maybe Man United will get tired is, is going to be. Half-time yeah there's
0: no half time Real Madrid tired Real Madrid old uh-uh. team talk available no. here right not so yeah. much it's 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 not going to work there's going to have to be some major 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 adjustment the other thing i see is in in the late 90s no one in england had seen crosses like those things that david beckham was sending in and nobody could deal with it i think if david beckham does that to teams in the 60s um the, there's all kinds of trouble um the only yeah. and the other thing is i'm not sure there's that much there's not as much defensive presence out wide in this weird 3-2, 2-3 system that Benfica have. I don't think they have like dedicated fullbacks that could really, or dedicated wide midfielders that could go with David Beckham. You're going to be asking one of the wingers like Simoes to maybe come back and try and do some sort of defensive job um, yeah. on this guy with fancy <laughs> hair. Um, so I really yeah. think that Beckham's threat out wide is a problem. The only pro-Benfica point here is I don't know what this 1960s ball is like and if David Beckham <laughs> can bend it like Beckham in 1962 yeah. with what might be a heavy leather ball.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, may, maybe it takes him a little bit of time to get his like accuracy in. Yeah. Uh, and that's why I think maybe the first half is not going to be as exciting as the second half in this fictional competition.
0: <laughs> do we? Can we do a thing where like maybe we do give the team that's visiting the different time period a, a week to acclimate or something like that?
2: Yeah, I think yeah. that's fair. Um, I think we can we can allow that, and, and, uh, and then maybe that lets the other team uh, adjust their fitness standards.
0: Beckham's a famous practiser as well, right? So he would be out there mm-hmm. figuring out what to do with this heavy ball.
2: Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it does like not going into like the pop culture route. It does make sense why he and like uh, Victoria Beckham combine the way they did because from everything I've heard it's not about like necessarily talent when it comes to being a pop star a lot of it is talent a lot of it is work ethic and like the discipline and drilling to make it happen yeah. and I feel like that's kind of where they bond is like alright I'm going to work I'll be back in 14 hours me too <laughs> like they're both just going to go practice Uh, yeah so I, I think He'd be the like, other Neville, the-
0: Gary Neville pour some more water
2: on that ball let's <laughs> make it heavier <laughs> soggier flatter heavier goal um, yeah and then And then I think the way Benfica would maybe try to react is by like even tightening up some of the short passes. They would do the short sort of build-up play. But even then, if you have those kind of numbers around the ball, I think Manchester United figure out a way to sort of intercept those or make that sort of quick passing combination uh, that... Benfica would rely upon, not as effective. So yeah, I his... think, though I would like to see a, another upset, uh, I don't want it to necessarily be this game. I just don't think Benfica are able to do it. I'm just sad because I don't want Eusebio out of the competition. <laughs> Here's two other
0: things I see happening. Um, and Please. I really want to get these in the show because I've spent a lot of mental energy to, to imagine <laughs> this. Um, the thing we talked about with Germano, the sort of sweeper type player who would step yep. out, win the ball for Benfica, drive it forward, play it into the feet of Eusebio or Coluna or, you know, get and get something going. The way that we know that Manchester United team played, right, fairly direct to York and Cole, doesn't matter if they win it or not, because then uh, Keane and Scholes and everybody else is swarming to win the ball back. This really could happen, right? You could have Gamano steps in front of Dwight York, wins the ball, and as he's about to take a touch-up field and then play that pass into Eusebio, he gets a Roy Keane in his face. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And then there's a sort yeah, I mean, of United counter-press sure. on. Um, I, I really think that he's not faced anything like that before because not many people have faced anything like Roy Keane before. The only player I could see handling Roy Keane is Kaluna. Just because he just he's got that made of titanium thing about him, he's got that air of authority about him. I think uh, Mario Coluna versus Roy Keane is sort of the the uh, the matchup of this game in midfield.
2: I still I still back Roy Keane a little bit. That said, he has a temper. Maybe maybe, maybe coluna rides some of those challenges. Uh, Keane gets frustrated, hauls off with a kick, and then we got a red card, and things are a little bit that tired. could but, be it. Yeah, but. I think Roy Keane has the discipline at this time period to make it through. (laughs) That might be more so my personal bias, though.
0: But I'm with you. I think Manchester United win this game. And it it is mostly like a, a somewhat recency bias, even though this Man United team is 21 years ago now. I just think there are certain things that have changed, like the the aggression of the chasing the ball down, the tightness between the lines, the thing that Beckham's doing with the with the ball. Um, so I just think all that is too much, even for this magnificent Benfica team that I've really enjoyed watching in a way that I used to think, oh yeah, that was the team that had Eusebio and that's why they beat everybody. Now I know a lot more about them, but I also think they lose to Manchester United. I also think maybe I Ryan as Giggs well. asks if he can stay behind in the 60s because he feels more at home as a 60s winger.
2: I mean, I think he, I, I mean, Summer of Love is is coming up. I think if we know anything about Ryan Giggs, it's that he wants to be there for that. <laughs> um, and you you did, you hit on this very quickly, but I would just want to go back to it, because the other reason why I felt like United would have a lot of success here is though Schmeichel had his shaky moments this season, it is that distribution. And even if you give him that week to maybe have the same David Beckham practice when it comes to his yeah. distribution, the distance and accuracy combined, that there are so many clips of him hitting it 75 yards, like roughly to the feet of Dwight York or to the feet of Andy Cole or just into space for them to run onto. Or he had that, like, I think Tim Howard against Algeria throwing distribution as well. Mm -hmm. And I just wonder if maybe Benfica would see that because their goalkeeper was consistent and there for 13 years but was a bit, like, temperamental and would get so anxious that he couldn't, like, think properly about the game. I don't know if he is going to have that level of distribution. Yeah, he was... It wasn't that he threw up. I forget what he did. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But then watching him, he definitely has, uh, it, it is not him for Portugal, notably. He is not the starting goalkeeper for Portugal, and I think part of that is rooted in him sort of being, like, too overwhelmed by major occasions. Fair enough. Fair enough. All right, and I, think, and I think a team from the future coming back to play your team would be a major occasion.
0: <laughs> I mean, it would definitely give you a lot to think about.
2: Right? <laughs> it would. It certainly would.
0: <laughs> so congratulations to yeah. the Manchester United treble winning team on advancing. Um, congratulations to me for getting to watch Benfica though because I enjoyed myself. And now I have a little gap in my knowledge that has been filled with Mario Coluna. I feel really, I feel really good about just knowing think, that he's
2: around. I think... Congratulations to you for keeping hold of this show as we started talking about the 1999 Manchester United team. (laughs) Um, Today's show... I know who I am.
0: (laughs) Today's show, before we move on, is weirdly sponsored by The Athletic. Um, The Athletic is looking to support and highlight local business owners who may be listening. Um, The Athletic wants you to know that if you're a local business owner, you can advertise on this show. Um, So you can go to theathletic.com slash podcast ads and then you can sort of scroll down. I think it's organized by state and you can see what city you're in um, and you can advertise on a show that is sort of relevant to your city. Or if you want, you can advertise on the Total Soccer Show.
2: You can. We're here. We like advertisements. Yeah. But but the the local uh, offering is a, is a really smart thing by The Athletic, I'll say that. Uh, but I think it's also a really useful thing because it does allow you sort of a central repository for, oh, these are the four shows in my area. Or like, oh, I, I am an advertiser here and I have a business here. Oh, they have two different podcasts in those two different cities. Perfect. So I think you can sort of mix and match as well to figure out what might work best for you.
0: And the place to go to take a look is theathletic.com slash podcast ads, theathletic.com. Slash podcast ads. You know where the link will be.
2: It'll be in the show notes. I mean, that would make sense. I wasn't sure. I'm glad you clarified. <laughs> uh, but thank you to the Athletic for uh, continuing to let us have a show, and then also for sponsoring today's episode. Uh, Dare we have an update to a listener yes. question next? I do believe. So yeah,
0: Raghav Gupta asked a great question, mm. um, or we answered a great Raghav Gupta question uh, this past week. Ragav asked us, what are some of the famous examples of soccer players protesting? And mm-hmm. I think it's fair to say that we each did a non-exhaustive amount of research and just like pick some of the things that came to mind, right? So we we had a good list, I think. But then we got what I love, which is a lot of suggestions from listeners of other protests we could have included. And as far as I'm aware, we didn't get any of the no protest question mark mm-hmm. we got how about this one or how about this one and, and i really enjoyed the detail that people sent so that we could now share it with you so we've got a list of one two three four that we really liked that we want to um share with people i'll get us going if you want taylor with yes, um, at moment of magic pod so on twitter um at moment of magic pod tweeted at us and we know who this is right we know we know the person behind the behind the handle alejandro bedoya I'm surprised we forgot this. In August of 2019, um, in response to another massacre, um, Alejandro Bedoya, after scoring for Philadelphia Union, grabbed a field mic and shouted, Mm -hmm. Congress, do something now, end gun violence, let's go.
2: Yeah, that's a protest. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that's that's uh 'cause it's a like a, a premeditated action, but then it simultaneously uh has to be covered by both the television uh crew, but then the audience obviously is gonna hear that, the people in the stands. It, so it's a, it's a doubly effective one. Well done, Ali Badoya. Sorry we forgot that. In a way that we kind of always forgot Alejandro Badoya when we were talking about the national team. Yeah, wh-
0: why why did that happen?
2: I don't know. I think it's because he was always the like 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 Weston McKinney light almost in terms of like he can play anywhere in the midfield so like he's gonna be in there but he's never gonna be the first choice name on this on the sheet I think he
0: also um, spoke up afterwards right this was after incidents in uh, Texas mm-hmm. and Ohio and honestly it it speaks to the nationwide problem that it was hard to remember even which event it had been, right? It's so it's so regular. Um, and I think that's part of what motivated Bedoya to yell at Congress through the microphones because it looked like Congress was was not going to do anything. So Congress, do something now, end gun violence, let's go. And I, I don't know why, but I kind of liked the, let, the let's go at the end of it.
2: I mean, it's a motivator. I like that one. I did enjoy uh, the Jerdan Shakiri celebration yes. in the past World Cup, which we forgot about. Miles, slash Miles, tweeted, Shakiri double eagle after scoring for Switzerland versus Serbia. Yeah, that was a big one that we thought maybe would end up getting a sanction or some sort of reaction. I think in the end, he, w- he was cleared or certainly not suspended. So
0: uh, Miles actually asked on Twitter, why didn't we include mm. that? And I actually remembered this one but i didn't know what to do with it because i was confused about it and here's why so it's switzerland against serbia right shikiri is from kosovo um i mean he famously has switzerland and kosovo uh flags on his on his cleats he does the double eagle which is the symbol of albania Right? right. So I was basically confused because there are three entities involved here. I, I also didn't know, I don't think at the time that it, it is a protest in that it's a protest against Serbia's um, decision to not recognize Kosovo as a nation. Right. But then I was, I was still confused. Why not do some sort of Kosovan symbol? Now, what I've come to realize is that Kosovo is like 90 something percent Albanian and that the long term mm-hmm. plan seems to be there's some sort of movement for kosovo to establish as an independent nation get full recognition and then eventually um become a part of albania or become very closely aligned with albania so it's essentially Mm -hmm. a pro albania double eagle double eagle is the albanian flag that's why he did the the double eagle that is also easily and interpreted as pro kosovo because kosovo is so heavily albanian now i understand Mm -hmm. it did that make sense when i said it out loud though
2: it it definitely did. I just remember us having to go through all of the nuance of this when it happened live, so I'm glad that you were willing to do it again to oh, make Oh, did we do it
0: in 2018? Like, make
2: it clear. Oh, yeah. Oh, we talked about it in the moment cuz Cause, cause, like I I I don't know why I ever rem- I knew that that was a thing that you like they would do, they would throw up as like uh a nationalist thing, like or not even a nationalist thing, but I knew that that was a, a like way to show resistance, basically. So when he did that, I was like, ooh, that feels significant. Yeah. And I wasn't entirely sure how, but I knew that it related somewhere to uh, Serbia v. Albania because there was that... It was Albania-Serbia that was abandoned when like, the drone flew out of the field. Do you remember that way back when?
0: Is that in Euro 2016?
2: Uh, it was around then, or it was qual- maybe it was a qualifier for Euro 2016. Uh, but yeah, so I knew there was sort of already the bla- bad blood there and I think that was I mean obviously there's bad blood going back hundreds of years uh but I think that was sort of already in my mind when that celebration happened uh and then I think we saw like uh, afterwards that there were like four other players doing it as well yeah, Granit was doing it. it at some point mm-hmm. right
0: yeah so yeah we're gonna add that to list. thank you to uh, I believe Miles is how we pronounce that thank you to okay. Miles for um for for suggesting Shakira's double eagle
2: yeah Mm-hmm. Uh, thank you to at Madison Soccer for reminding us about Socrates, who I, this is another one where I like thought of Socrates very briefly because he has the reputation for being this very like passionate thinker and leader. But I wasn't sure if there were like specific moments of protest or none came readily to mind. I should have just read one article about him and I would have found <laughs> six.
0: So famously, Socrates, when he plays for Corinthians in Brazil in the 80s, um, he sets up a thing called corinthian democracy where the team itself the corinthians team in brazil is run on a democratic basis and they're sort of quite loud about being run on a democratic basis the point being that brazil at the time was under a military dictatorship right so any public display of things being run democratically um is in direct opposition to the way the country is run and at the same time this Corinthians team just does a lot of pro-democracy things right they w- they used to wear shirts that said democr- uh, democracia on it which I'm sure you can figure out um, what that means and then they were also in favour of the uh, w- when things started to reform in the 80s this is what I understand there was a reform movement to slowly get Brazil towards democracy um, he got involved in a thing called the direct presidential elections movement where essentially they wanted to have everyone get a vote for president as opposed to um, it going through an electoral college style system that's different to the US one it was like much less um, m- much less people's votes counting towards the electoral college
2: mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Um, so w- what was your what was your favorite thing you learned about reading from Socrates and his protests and the kind of stances he took?
0: I mean, I really like the idea of uh, living living it as a protest or living your mm-hmm. protest as an example and running the entire soccer team that way, right? Mm-hmm. And then you because it's not just you, it's this entire band of people that you're with and you're not just saying, hey, here's what everybody should do. You're literally uh, being the change you want to see in the world, as I believe Gandhi said, right? You lead mm-hmm. by example and actually do the thing that you're talking about
2: and then and then can we talk about like the club elections for a moment
0: i'm not sure i know much about it but so why don't you oh. talk about the club elections for moment? so
2: essentially with the with the club like with the the club board i believe it was and the kind of like like the way corinthians were going to be governed there was a divide between sort of like younger more like liberal leftist thinking people versus the kind of older guard i think they were i forget if they were called it was something very intimidating and frightening like the truth and sincerity group or like it was like it was a very like yikes um, and he said I will leave the club if they win like it really was he threw his weight entirely behind the kind of leftist more progressive side and they end up winning. He stays with the club. He then says, basically, like, if things don't change, if elections don't go the way they will, then I'm going to leave. They don't go the way he wants. He does leave. Yeah. So he kind of backs up his words with actions. That's when he goes to Italy. So,
0: as I understand it, in 1984, there's a proposed constitutional amendment for these direct presidential elections we're talking about,
2: right? Where Thank you. That's what
0: everybody's yeah. vote like counts directly towards who the president is, instead of this weird electoral college Uh, system. So there's a vote on the amendment, I believe, or the amendment is essentially not adopted. He had said, if this doesn't get adopted, I'm going to leave Brazil. I'm going to go and play abroad. It does not get adopted. Good as his word. He moves to Fiorentina really, really quickly. He absolutely says, if this doesn't pass, I'm out. It doesn't pass. So he's out. He goes and plays for Fiorentina.
2: Yeah, he actually moved to Canada. Well done, Socrates.
0: (laughs) I think you're confused about where Fiorentina is. <laughs> or you're just making a yeah, really that. good analogy uh
2: maybe <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: the final one we have here is an email i believe we yep. received from matthew shaddock it's about johan cruyff so johan cruyff obviously one of the great great players of the 70s got to the 74 world cup final with the netherlands lost to West germany had another chance in 1978 when a, a really good dutch team went to the 78 world cup one of the stories about why Johan Cruyff didn't go to the 78 World Cup with the Netherlands is that he was protesting the Argentinian military regime known as the Junta. Um, there are other theories about why he didn't go there, right?
2: Uh, yes. I mean, that is one. There's the theory that uh, he had uh, had an affair uh, and his wife found out his wife did not allow him to go. Uh, the one that is more... I guess commonly believed because he talked about it more recently. I think it was like in 2008, he came out and said in like an interview uh, with a Spanish radio station that his family had been uh, held captive, held at gunpoint that uh, he had been able to like escape. And I think like chase the people off, but he was, he had a shotgun uh, held to his head. I think he said, and that afterwards there was such trauma. He didn't feel comfortable leaving his family and he was concerned about their safety. So I think it was only like a couple months before the world cup. So that's why he chose not to participate. Uh, that is his official story, or that was the most recent official story. It's uh, There's a chance that that is the only thing. There's a chance that it's some combination of all three.
0: My guess is it's the latter one that you just yeah. mentioned. The thing from 74 when he possibly had the affair doesn't help in any way, mm. but it probably isn't the main reason. Um, but I'll bet like if he decides to stay home because he's, um fears for his family's safety— why not also say I'm protesting the I'm protesting the military government. Yeah. Just to yeah. um just to add that. I mean he's a tactical genius, right? Johan Cruyff. He's like, "What why not get this little bit of protest in there?" Um even though it's not the real reason because I'd much rather go and win a World Cup.
2: Yeah. And and the thing I said this to you off air but I'll say again is the only reason I would love to believe that because I would love to love Cruyff even more and and like refusing to play in a game because of uh like injustice in the world would be great. But the thing we know about Cruyff is that he loves some conflict. He loves having a person to sort of motivate him. He loves the the evil figure that he can train and train and train in order to beat and have that villainous uh, person in his existence. It's Louis van Hall sometimes. It's uh, Franco sometimes. And it does feel like he would have enjoyed an opportunity to go and embarrass Argentina uh, knowing that – I mean he is – no one is untouchable, but Johan Cruyff, I feel like, is fairly untouchable yeah. in terms of they can't really afford to do anything to him because that would pretty much cause a global incident immediately. And that seventy-eight Dutch
0: team gets to the final and loses to Argentina. Yeah. Imagine if they got to the final and Cruyff beats Argentina um, in Argentina with that Dutch mm-hmm. team. That's surely a better protest
2: yeah. than just sitting it out. It it would have been. It would have been. I have one more to add yeah. that we didn't talk about. Um, if unless you want, uh, it's 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 not a player and it's not. Quite a protest protest, but it's uh, Nikolai Starostin. Do you know that name? No. He is the founder of Spartak Moscow. Uh, I think he was an Olympic hockey player, I think, and maybe also a soccer player in the Olympics for the Soviet Union. He found Spartak Moscow. They are very, very successful uh, to the point where they start embarrassing some of the state soccer teams, including the KGB team, which would have been Dinamo Moscow. Do you know who would have been overseeing Dinamo Moscow, Daryl? You know his name from uh, a recent movie? No. Stalin? La Berea. Uh, the uh, Berea from um, The Death of Scallon. Oh, Not yes, yes. the most uh, lovely of people. Who's uh, the, and which when... actor plays
0: him? So that helps me remember.
2: Uh, it's the he, I mean he's the he is the villain oh of the yes. The, the, yes okay yeah yeah yep. exactly I'm, I'm I'm kind of dancing around it because it will take us down way too dark of a yeah. path uh, but he is a horrible human being uh, with that said uh, Spartak were basically too good uh, they were run by three brothers the brother Starostin uh, Berea has them detained and asks them to basically like name names and maybe like maybe just not be so good they refuse they are in the gulag I think when like they're in the gulag for like five years basically uh, Starostin ends up coaching the gulag team at one point Point. so i think a willingness to like go to prison rather than name names and get people murdered uh i think i think that's a decent protest yeah. i'll take that one fair enough
0: all right well thank you to ragav for the original question which we've now answered twice because it was so good i think that's the mark
2: of a really good question <laughs> yeah i think we'll probably go back to it one or two more times and, is my guess
0: yeah, thank you to everybody um who sent in their suggestions honestly we're open if you have if you have more that are genuine protests, right? Genuine, yeah. genuine protests. Like, I wouldn't call Roy Keane leaving the 2002 World Cup a protest no. against the, uh, the Irish FA. It's more of a, um, a tantrum. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> <laughs> so we're definitely going to be... We're going to draw a line about what's a protest and what's just something done in anger. I think a protest has to be premeditated. How about that? Yeah. It can't be a disagreement yeah, with that- Mick McCarthy.
2: Yes. Or at the very least, it has to be yet yeah, rooted in some form of premeditation as opposed to a thing happening. And then you respond. Yeah, yeah I, I'm with you and on maybe that. Maybe it's going to well, be rooted
0: said. in some sort of ideology as well.
2: Yes, right? exactly. That's what I was That's what I was trying to yeah. think of is like versus Reiki being like, the grass hasn't been cut and I am furious. the
0: hotel should be better. <laughs> um.
2: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Um, right. If that's the case, I have protested many times. <laughs>
0: we have one more major thing to talk about after the next yeah. ad. It's Timo Werner's move to Chelsea. Um, Telly, can I ask you a favor? If I do you. this ad read, while I'm doing it, could you look up if Timo Werner's move to Chelsea has actually been confirmed?
2: It, it had not at time of uh, this phone call beginning, but yes, I can look it up right Go now. For it, then. Have at it, my friend. Today's
0: show is sponsored by Roman, spelled R O M A N. Um, If you are dealing with erectile dysfunction it can be frustrating. It's a psychological hurdle. It's also there are logistical hurdles to getting it dealt with. But our friends at Roman have spent years building a digital platform that can connect you with a doctor licensed in your state. And you can do this all from the comfort of home. So it's easy to overcome any embarrassment you might have. It's easy to overcome any logistical problems. Roman makes it convenient. You just grab your phone or your computer, you complete a free online visit, and you'll hear back from a US licensed physician with Within 24 hours. Any news from your end, Taylor, on the Timo Werner move? Uh,
2: not not yet official.
0: Not yet official. Okay. Um, If the doctor decides that treatment is right for you, Roman's Pharmacy can ship your medication to you with free two-day shipping and you'll get unlimited follow-ups with your doctor anytime you have questions or want to address, adjust your treatment plan. If you're struggling with ED, go to getroman.com slash TSS for a free online visit and free two day shipping. That's getroman.com slash TSS for a free online visit and free two day shipping. And Taylor, it just occurred to me that people might be thinking that free online visit just means you get to go to the Roman website and no one charges you, right? The free online (laughs) visit. I can see that being confusing. you get to actually have the visit where you can uh, figure out whether erectile dysfunction medication is right for you. It's not just a visit to a website. It's a telemedicine visit. com slash TSS.
2: So, okay, here's my update for you. You yes. ready? So the the deal is not yet completely finalized. It will require Chelsea officially activating the release clause and then uh, then it would be that Timo Werder has agreed to the terms, which will be very, very generous. Uh, from... A, a friend of ours, it is 99.9% done, <laughs> just not officially done.
0: So if people don't know, this is Timo Werner, the Red Bull Leipzig, excuse me, RB Leipzig. Um, oh I'm going to say attacker, Timo Werner. Um, he has a release closing his contract of, I believe, like 60 million euros. Um, in the British press, they're reporting it as 53 million pounds. Um, it was expected that Liverpool were going to do this, right? But Chelsea mm-hmm. apparently sent Petr Cech... And Frank Lampard, Cech and Frank Lampard, went and sat with Timo Werner, explained their vision of how Chelsea are gonna play next season and how they see Timo Werner being involved, and he was all in. I'm sure the rumoured two hundred thousand pounds a week is not a bad little bonus either.
2: Did you I actually I can tell you what the presentation was. I don't know if you were able to find really? it. Was it was it yeah, the money it's on a basically- table? Uh, it was a, f- a photo of how much $200,000 a week is. That didn't hurt. But no, the major one was that they showed him a, like a picture of like a graphic of the actual like, current Chelsea starting eleven with just an X drawn through Tammy Abraham's hey. name and then you written in Sharpie.
0: Let's get to today's question. We have a question. <laughs> sure. we we're going to talk about this anyway, but I think Shreyas Romani we sent us yeah. a really good question that gets to mm-hmm. the heart of what we want to talk about. So thank you, Shreyas. Shreyas Romani asks... If the rumored move for Timo Werner goes through, 99.9%, according to our source, um, who should be more worried about his spot in Chelsea's lineup? Is it Christian Pulisic or is it Tammy Abraham?
2: I mean, it's, it's Tammy Abraham who I think should be more worried about this one for Why sure. Why is that? Because, like, though Timo Werder can roam around, he can be utilized wide. I think when you look at Chelsea's deficiencies, I think the frustration has been, not even with Tammy Abraham, but the lack of other... Scoring options and the lack of a person who can like like augment or supplement or play with Tammy Abraham and I think that's what Timo, Timo Werner will be asked to do because I think what they want is a mobile striker who can be very clinical in front of goals in front of goal excuse me to a to be able to get lots of goals I think that they've been okay with Tammy Abraham but the injuries and then I think some of his uh, relative proflig- profligacy is how I put that um, has been an issue whereas I don't think they're as concerned about say Christian Pulisic yet and I don't think that's the area that they're looking to strengthen I think it's definitely goal scoring in the center of the field
0: I'm not going to disagree with you but I'm going to make the case for why it's Christian Pulisic who should be more worried Mm. Um, if you just look at the profile of the player and what their skills are and what they do and the areas they tend to occupy I would argue Timo Werner is more similar to Christian Pulisic than he is to Tammy Abraham because what you often see Timo Werner do in that like Leipzig 4-2-2-2, or even if they play like um, Mm -hmm. a top three, is he is a right-footed player who tends to start on the left and like slash diagonally inwards and get in the box from there. So I definitely see a lot of similarities between Timo Werner's game, Timo Werner's style of play, and Christian Pulisic's style of play. So I think that's the case for it being Pulisic who needs to be more worried.
2: But do you think it actually is?
0: I think it's a thing where we don't have to choose. I think mm-hmm. Chelsea are going to maybe have some sort of shape next season that is going to be a bit of a revolution because Pedro and Willian are leaving, right? Their contracts are expiring. Um, Hakam Ziyech is coming in from Ajax. That's confirmed, right? He's mm-hmm. coming in the summer. And then Timo Werner also coming in the summer. So we're essentially, essentially replacing Willian and Pedro with players who have... A bit more positional fluidity, right? Ziesch can play on the right with his left foot, but he can also play as a number ten. Whereas Timo Werner can play can play on the left with his right foot, but can also play as a striker. And I think Frank Lampard is looking to just mix it up a little more with Chelsea next season. So I think there is going to be opportunities for everybody.
2: Okay. Uh, yeah, I think that that's probably a safe bet. But we should also, just in case, because in my mind, we haven't maybe drilled down on one aspect of this question. It's that, why are we sure it will be Timo Werner replacing somebody as opposed to like, maybe it's going to be a battle. And it's because the reason why he he was able to go to Chelsea, why Chelsea were able to get him is because they guaranteed him playing time. He you uh, sure and about so that? I, I mean, think that-
0: I guess that has to be part of the meeting, right?
2: Uh, from what I understand, uh, this is from uh, a transfer market report, which uh, I think is is fairly good. Um, l- the issue with Liverpool was they couldn't guarantee him playing time. But initially, he was going there because with the African Cup of Nations, there would be uh, – with uh, Salah gone and Mane gone, there would be a need for him to come in and get – at least some consistent minutes for like a decent chunk of the season. But once the African Cup of Nations had to be moved, now they're not going away. So there's this concern of, is he going to be able to play? And I think with Man United, it was contingent on them being able to sell Paul Pogba to have the money. But I I think even then he wanted the guarantee of minutes, and I think that was never an issue with Chelsea. So there was no monetary issue, there was no playing time issue. So I think that then leads to the idea that he probably will start. And I also think that if you're Frank Lampard, like from a business side and making sure that Roman Abramovich is happy, I think maybe there's more of a willingness to sit Tammy Abraham over the $80 million Christian Pulisic.
0: There is an argument that good as Tammy Abraham, Abraham is at as a, as a lot of mm-hmm. things, including getting into goal scoring positions, that Certainly. he is not quite elite just yet. Right. Like there's not, there's not really an argument for Tammy Abraham starting over a fit Harry Kane ever at this point. Right. It's, there's no, there's no big push for that. So from that perspective, you can say that like dropping Werner into the lineup and replacing Tammy Abraham is something of an upgrade. It's a different looking Chelsea team, right? It's It's because Tammy Abraham brings that thing of being right. essentially very tall (laughs) and just being very very good in the air (laughs) and you can use him as a target man but it may be that Chelsea's style of play next season to um to play into the idea that it's Tammy Abraham getting replaced it may be that they're going to shift to a more Liverpool-ish like just three three forwards three attacking players Mm -hmm. as opposed to like a centre forward and wingers around him you know what I mean so there is that chance but I think there's all I think there's also a chance that there's room for all of these guys in this team in some sort of new Chelsea shape there could be Uh, Tammy Abraham and Timo Werner um, played at the same time. Um, You've also got Mason Mount to think about. I I just think there'll be an interesting competition for places next season. And as a US men's national team fan, I'm not worried about Christian Pulisic because this is what it's like to play for a top-level Premier League team, right? You've always got to be expecting competition um, in the starting lineup. If anything, Liverpool are weird, right? That They've just got that established front three. And then they've also got, it's almost like a 99 Manchester United type thing where guys like Divock Origi are 100% happy as far as I can tell to be like um, a Belgian Ole Gunnar Solskjaer.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, and, and then with the success that Liverpool have, it means they stay in lots of competitions. It means that you are yeah. going to have opportunities just because of fixture congestion. So you're going to be in the squad, on the bench for a very good team that's probably playing in the Champions League or fighting for qualification. And then you'll also be getting like like somewhat regular starts. I think it probably makes sense why some players are more complacent to to hang out and get those minutes and get that money as well.
0: So you went all in. You think uh, it's, Werner, uh, sorry, it's Abraham who needs to be more worried about losing his spot to Timo Werner? Do you th- did I sit on the fence too much or did I give an answer?
2: I am I think you kind of sat on the fence. I'm going to be honest. <laughs> I yeah. think there's a little bit of it like, well, it could be both and maybe it's one, but it might be the other. All
0: right. So I'm still going to hold to the idea that it could end up that Timo Werner ends up playing on the left wing in Christian Pulisic's position because he does have the profile to play that position. But I'm going to argue, I'm going to agree with you at least initially that the direct threat is to Tammy Abraham because he's the most obviously upgradable part of that Chelsea attack.
2: Yeah, yeah, okay, I'm good with that. I I will also more.
0: There are still nine games to be played, right? So a lot of this depends on what Christian Pulisic, for example, does in the final nine games of the season.
2: Very true. And then we may also add uh, Ben Chilwell to this mix as well. Suddenly, that Chelsea team. Yes. Pretty solid. Pretty solid.
0: Oh, one, one extra possibility in Christian Pulisic's favor is we keep thinking of him as he plays on the left and he comes inside with his right foot, and that does seem to be what he's best at. But we saw him play on the right wing plenty for Borussia Dortmund, right? Um, mm. And I've also seen a lot of ideas that Hakam Ziesch could join, and instead of playing right wing left foot, he could actually play as more of a number 10. And then there is a spot for Christian Pulisic to go and play on the right wing. So you mm. could end up with Pulisic on the right, Ziesch as the attacking midfielder, um, Timo Werner on the left, and Tammy Abraham up front.
2: Yeah. You could, you could well see that. Yeah. You could well see. So there are Either way, I think it's going to be plans, Timo Werner starting, for sure.
0: <laughs> Actually, can I close with a quote from Michael Kayley of Double Pivot? Sure. Because this has me excited about Chelsea next season. Um, he says, Chelsea are going to have two peak age or younger shot monster strikers, which is uh, Werner and Tammy Abraham, and two elite shot creators on the wings, which is uh, Ziyech and Christian Pulisic. And, this is the exciting part, a low-key lunatic of a manager who will probably try and play them all together. So Michael Cayley uh, at least, is excited to just see them try and do all at once.
2: I, I'm okay with that. Yeah. I, I'm okay with Michael Cayley as well. So, uh, <laughs> double there.
0: Double that. Okay. Um, anything else to add on this, Taylor? This was just like a, a good bit of like US national team-centric-ish news to close the show with, in my opinion
2: just that it's going to be a really weird time because we have like players maybe on the move and maybe agreeing to moves but then still playing for other teams and yeah. and like yeah like I can't think of a scenario aside from like I guess maybe the January window but even then we're like you have moves happening, and to your point, like, you have players who still have time to come out. Like If Tammy Abraham scores 15 goals in nine games, <laughs> I don't know how they sit him, but I mean maybe they still do. So you have this moment where like, you've got players who could be on the move. You have teams who are looking to strengthen, but then simultaneously are sort of figuring out where they need to strengthen and who can do what. Uh, It's going to be strange, and I'm excited about it, and it's yet another reason why we're going to be covering it in the level that we're going to be covering it.
0: Yep, and the first chance to get a look at Chelsea will be Sunday, June 21st, away to Aston Villa, which I don't think is a bad place to go, um, 11.15 a.m. Eastern on NBC Sports Network. We hope to see Christian Pulisic in that game. Um, Final thing I want to commence to, Taylor, is probably late next week, we'll probably start doing some Premier League preview stuff, right? Like a reminder of where we stand and what the various teams are doing.
2: Yes, I'm very excited to do that uh, because I have forgotten what some of the Premier League teams are doing. Aside from Liverpool, what they're doing is winning.
0: (laughs) Well, I'll give you a reminder that Chelsea are in fourth, Liverpool are top, Manchester City are second. And it still looks weird when I look at it, but Leicester City are in third place.
2: I would not have guessed that.
0: Yeah. So Ben Chilwell right now, if he joins Chelsea, would be moving down a position in the Premier League. Just think about that.
2: I mean, <laughs> he's just following in the footsteps of Mgolo Conte.
0: <laughs> All right, to close the show, and Taylor. And drink
2: water. Good Lord.
0: Oh, he's still <laughs> a football player? Um, <laughs> to, <laughs> to close the show, Taylor, is there anything you've been watching uh, that you want to recommend to people?
2: Um, I watched Lovebirds. I enjoyed it, uh, but it was... I was really excited for Issa Rae plus Kumail Nanjiani, and it was good, but it was not as good as I thought it was going to be. So I
0: saw it. I enjoyed it too. I thought it was really okay. funny. Yeah, uh,
2: yeah. I think I think they are very very funny, and I think it was sort of like we have a. It was a. It was like kind of like if uh, if Larry David like were accused or like or like falsely accused of murder, basically in yeah. a comedy where it's like stuff kind of happens it's very loosely scripted you can tell a lot of it is just them being very very funny
0: i think here's here's what i thought it felt like an mm-hmm. 80s comedy in a weird way in that the the plotting around it was very mm-hmm. loose and there's just like oh that guy's there now you know what i mean there's a lot of very weird very weird and um yeah, things happen too easily to move the plot along, if that mm-hmm. makes sense. And things don't quite feel realistic. But all the the banter between um, Rae and Kamon and Gianni, it's all worth it just to watch those two um, in action. The only other thing is, there's a few just weird changes of tone, like uh-huh. when like when we're just bantering along and suddenly someone gets run over four times in a row. <laughs> it just <laughs> it just takes you by surprise a few times. But 100% would yeah. recommend. Fair. yeah yeah Yeah. i would agree um for me i've been watching this is this is so great you know i love alan partridge steve coogan's alan partridge um i thought i'd seen everything hbo max um put like a full alan partridge collection on there there's a whole season of this thing called mid morning matters that was produced for the web only uh, and sponsored by like fosters which is a lager in the uk um, that I hadn't seen. I didn't know it existed. And it's been repackaged as a proper TV program. Um, so I've essentially got a whole new season of Alan Partridge to watch that I didn't know I had.
2: So I'm very excited for you that you have more Alan Partridge. I can't help but notice that in that entire uh, like paragraph of words, none of them mentioned Escape from New York. And I'm just wondering what's happening there.
0: It's on the list, Taylor. It's on the list
2: all right yeah all right but alan partridge, i should hope so.
0: alan partridge is higher on the list
2: <laughs> you can choose between escape from new york or big trouble in little china whichever you prefer
0: is that are those two related like in a sequel-y kind of way or is it just uh, no kurt but russell links
2: them and john carpenter it's john carpenter directing kurt russell kurt russell hamming it up
0: <laughs> <laughs> but does he take callers from uh norwich metro area
2: Uh, no, but he does, uh, deliver monologues into a CB radio at the start of the movie.
0: All right. So it's kind of similar. It's kind of similar. (laughs) All right.
2: On that note,
0: (laughs) let's close it down. Taylor Rockwell, thank you for taking the time to talk to me today.
2: Right back at you, buddy.
0: Listeners, thank you for listening and we will talk to you again next week.